But we just have a few announcements before we carry on with our service. You may or may not know, we are currently in transition looking for a new lead pastor. And Justin Stade is leading our lead pastor search committee, and he's got an announcement for us. Thanks a lot, Kurt. Uh, morning, everybody. Yeah, as, as Kurt said, we're obviously in transition. Transition's a bit of a church word, but we're looking for a new leader. Um, the committee got started in the summertime, and we've been working together for a while now. There's 10 members uh, appointed by the board, and they, they represent a wide variety of people and demographics within our congregation. Um, the way that the, prof the process works is it's not too dissimilar from any kind of search when you're trying to hire someone. We have to do a job description. We have to do some materials that get posted. We go through interviews, all of those types of things. Obviously, layered on top of that is the this is a church, and that we trust God to help us with this process and to work with us as we go through it. Um, as, we, uh, as we engage in this process, we really wanted to make sure that we take the time to communicate with you. I know sometimes these processes can feel a little bit like they're done behind closed doors and that sort of thing, and that's not the intent, and that's not what we're, we're doing here as a search committee. So I'll be up on the stage at least once a month giving updates um, we really want to hear from you. If you have something to say, um, I'm in the lobby between most services, um, or you could put something on a comment card and just put attention to the search committee and it'll find its way to us and we'll absolutely be in communication with you. We are really excited about where we're going. Um, I think that the church is incredibly strong right now and I think we have a good sense of who we are as a church and that sets us up for success when it comes to being in a search committee looking for that next leader. Um, and I, I think the team is very happy with where we're going and what's going on. We've got a great board that's very supportive of the process. Our staff is helping us in a lot of different ways and it, it's been going very well. Um, we, are, we have just finished kind of a rough draft of the profile, which is the piece that kind of describes who we are. And we've sent it out for feedback to the staff, to the board, and a couple of other places to make sure that we're really articulating well what we're looking for here in the next, in the next lead of Lakeview. Um, we partner very closely with the Free Methodist Church in Canada, our denomination. They go through these types of things frequently. They've got a wonderful 50-page Churches in Transition handbook for anybody that would want to read it. Um, but they, they help us, and they've got an immense amount of wisdom when it comes to these things, and they're great partners as we move through it. Um, what I also want to do as we talk about engagement with you, the congregation, and the active members in this church is ask for things, frankly. Um, we will absolutely be asking for things as we go through this process. Um, right now, that ask is about prayer. Um, when you think about hiring the spiritual lead leader of a church, it can feel a little bit daunting. Um, I know the pastors are just people, but it also sometimes feels a little bit uh, bigger than that. And when we're in meetings, we will stop and pray and those types of things. Just remind ourselves that God's got this. But I also would really appreciate, I know our, board, our, our search committee would really appreciate prayer in this time. Knowing that you are praying for us and supporting us is, is just something that will bolster us as we continue this process. Um, I have this paper and I didn't pull it out. I just want to make sure I've got everything. Nailed it. Next time. Since I'm going to be doing this multiple times, Kurt and I have already decided it's going to be here for me to be able to look at my uh, notes. Um, I think the last thing was just I wanted to leave. Again, I said that I, I think we're pretty excited about knowing who we are as Lakeview. I think the other thing that's really important, this is my third transition where I've been on the board or a search committee. It's, it's, it's normal, but I will say that Lakeview is in a great place right now. 
Kurt, Allison, the staff, we are in a great place. And having been on leadership before and, and seeing where we're at right now in our transition, this is amazing. Typically, when you're in this situation, you're hearing about interim years and interim leaders, and it's just keep the train on the rails. This is not this year. I am incredibly excited about where we're going and what the opportunities that God's going to put in front of us this year. And if I might steal Kurt's line, this is the year to join in. So please do, and please pray for us. And if you have any questions, please see me in the lobby. Thank you, Justin. Yeah, give him a round of applause. Definitely deserved. I'm just going to ask Justin to just, just hang out here a moment. Um, he's asked us to pray for him and for the team, and I think it'd be good for us to do that right now. And so if you would, if you would just feel comfortable, just an extend an arm towards Justin representing the team of 10 individuals from our church that are, are working towards this, and, and he's asked us to pray, so let's do that. God, we ask for your wisdom and provision for our search committee. We pray that you'd go with them, you'd go before them, that they would know that you are by their side throughout the entire process, throughout the entire journey. God, would they uh, enter in with confidence, knowing that this is your church and you will provide. And so we pray that you would just give them discernment and understanding of your ways as they make decisions and as they pursue applicants and, and ultimately as they help us find the new lead pastor for our church. So we ask that you would just go with them we, we thank you for their willingness to serve. We pray your blessing would be with them. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. We're going to finish uh, worshiping together or continue worshiping together by praying together. So I just invite you as I nudge you to join your prayers to mine in the pauses. And after each pause, we're going to say together, Lord, hear our prayer. Let's pray. Thank you, God, that you are making all things new. Thank you that you are making us new. As we quiet our hearts and minds this morning, we orient ourselves again to your storyline. You will redeem all things. Whatever it is that we bring with us this morning, we acknowledge in this quiet moment that you are working in the midst of each of our stories. And so we open ourselves up to you. Together, Lord, hear our prayer. God, it's so hard to relinquish old storylines that have defined us for so long. It's hard to give up expectations about what should happen and expectations of what others should do. There are so many people in our lives who we work hard to protect and keep safe, who we worry over, who we lay awake at night thinking about. Would you help us to open up our sticky fingers and relinquish whatever it is that we need to, to get a restart? Give us courage. Meet us with your grace.
together, Lord, hear our prayer. We ask you for what we need this morning, God. We pray for our kids as they head off to school and activities. We ask for their protection. Would you give them buoyant spirits and new life as they engage in life again? We pray for those in our lives who need a restart. Would you give guidance and courage? Would you bring new possibilities? We pray for those in our lives who are in need, for those who are grieving. We ask for your provision and comfort. Together, Lord, hear our prayer. We pray for our world, God. We ask that as we head into an election tomorrow, that you would give wisdom and courage to whomever leads our country for the next few years. We pray for our healthcare workers who feel pushed to capacity, who feel tired and frustrated. Would you bring peace to their teams at work and hope and courage to their minds and hearts? We continue to pray for Haiti and Afghanistan and Ethiopia. We offer to you and pray for the situations in the world that weigh heavy on our hearts. Together, Lord, hear our prayer. Thank you, God, that you bring newness even when there isn't potential for anything new. You are the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Increase our faith. Give us hope. Reorient us again to your plan to renew all things. Amen. Welcome to our first installment, our first full installment in our new series, Restart. Stories of those who, like us, had to start again. So up until Advent, we're going to be hanging out in stories in the Old Testament, exploring stories of those who've had to restart. And as we tell these stories, it's our hope that you'll get a sense of the arc of Scripture and that you'll also start to feel like the Bible is a little more compelling and a little less confusing. So in addition to that, we're also going to continue to explore spiritual practices like we did last year, but we're going to do it in a different way. So last year, you'll remember that we did a teaching time and then we often followed that up with almost like another little sermon that encouraged you uh, to use one of the practices. Well, we're going to do um, something a little different this year. So we're going to focus on one practice a month, and then we're going to invite you deeper into that practice through various ways. So we might give you a resource or show a video, 
Um, or we might invite you to practice something particular with your family or your home church or with our community as a whole. And the goal in this is to remind, encourage, and equip you to embody your faith, to practice it, in order to cooperate with God's good work, transforming work in us, and also in the world. And so for this month, for the last two weeks of September, our practice is read your Bible. The Bible is meant to be read, not just only to come to church and hear an interpretation of it. We need to read it. Um, but I get it. It can be really daunting. It's big. It was written in another time. It can be confusing. Um, but the only way to learn to read the Bible is to start. So if you haven't started reading the Bible before, here are some really easy ways in. First, you could start by reading a psalm a day. And if you don't know where the psalms are, come and see me and I'll show you. It's okay. If you've never done it before, of course you don't know where the psalms are. Uh, you could start in the story of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all tell the story of Jesus, and that's a great place to start. Or you could read the stories that we're exploring each week in this series. So every Friday on Facebook and Instagram, we're going to uh, give you a sneak peek into the story that we're highlighting that weekend. So if you want to read the story before you come on Sunday, check out our Friday post. And if you're not a social media person, that's okay. Just let me know, and I'll make sure you get the preview personally from my email. Uh, in addition, we're also suggesting resources for each of our series and for the practices. And here are the two that we're suggesting today. First, The Bible Unwrapped by Megan Larissa Good is super accessible. It's an intro to scripture. Why would we read it? How we approach it? And then all of the various genres in scripture. Like we read poetry different than we read a narrative, different than we read uh, uh, a letter in the New Testament. It's great. Um, and Inspired by Rachel Held Evans is a new look at the familiar stories of scripture. And both of those resources are available in the bookstore, so you can pick one up this morning if you want. All right, let's get started. So last week we talked about how restarts are liminal spaces. Spaces where it can feel risky and hard, but where the potential for new things also grows. And then we talked about the overarching theme of scripture, which is echoed over and over again in the smaller stories that we're going to explore through this series. Does anybody remember that overarching story? God creates, we mess it up, God redeems. That's the story. But last week as I was out uh, riding my bike after I preached the sermon, I was thinking about that plot line and I felt like it wasn't quite true, that I wanted to make some edits um, to it. And this is the edit that I would make. I would say, God creates, we mess it up, or it gets messed up through no fault of our own, and still, God redeems. Sometimes we do mess it up, but sometimes it gets messed up for us. And as a result, we often feel powerless to do anything about it. And I think the beginning of our story this morning speaks to that feeling of powerlessness, that inability to do anything to better our situation or to fix it. Now, this passage might seem a little strange to illustrate the point, but just bear with me. Listen to this. 
This is the account of Shem's family. So for those of you who know the story of Noah, Shem was one of the sons of Noah. So we're starting kind of with Noah's kid and going through a genealogy. Two years after the great flood, when Shem was 100 years old, he became the father of Arphaxad. Anybody expecting a child? I don't know. Maybe that might be a name you would consider. No. When Arphaxad was 35 years old, he became the father of Shelah. When Shelah was 30 years old, he became the father of Eber. When Eber was 34 years old, he became the father of Peleg. When Peleg was 30 years old, he became the father of Ru. When Ru was 32 years old, he became the father of Serug. When Serug was 30 years old, he became the father of Nahor. When Nahor was 29 years old, he became the father of Terah. And after Terah was 70 years old, he became the father of Abram. Terah was the father of Abram, and the name of Abram's wife was Sarai. But Sarai was unable to become pregnant and had no children. So now you know our character today is Abram, but here's a little editorial note. Abram and Sarai, later on in their story, get their names changed to Abraham and Sarah. So if there's any confusion there, these are the same people, Abram and Sarai. And this is what has happened in the story of Scripture so far. So God created the world, including humanity, named it all good. But immediately things start to disintegrate. Even Adam eat the apple, Cain kills Abel, and things get worse and worse. Genesis actually says that God regretted God's decision to make the world. And so God wipes it all out in a flood and starts over with Noah. Noah is like a new Adam. He's a redo. It's God redeeming what humanity has messed up. But before too long, humanity is back at it. Uh, they build the Tower of Babel in an effort to make a name for themselves. And God says, if I let these guys continue to do what they want to do, we're going to end up with a big mess again. So God steps in and he creates new languages so that the people can't work together anymore, can't understand one another, and then they scatter throughout the land. That's all in the first 15 pages. It's not a good start. Things have not gone well for God's plan to build a good world. The story just keeps going sideways. It's kind of like a sputtering car. It goes for a bit, and then it dies, and then it gets a little new life and gets going again, and then it sputters again. And it feels like little by little, the potential for the goodness that God dreamed for the world is ebbing away. And then we read these verses. Arphaxad is the father of Shelah, who is the father of Eber, who is the father of Peleg, and on and on it goes all the way until Abram. But Sarah was unable to get pregnant and had no children. Abram was the father of nobody. So where does the story go from here? You have all of this chaos in the first 11 chapters of the Bible. Stops and restarts, mess-ups and redemption. The story just keeps kind of chugging along, but now it's come to a stop. The genealogy ends in barrenness. If there are no children, there is no future. Humanity has reached a dead end. Has redemptive history come to a halt? 
Brueggemann says this, barrenness is the way of human history. It is an effective metaphor for hopelessness. There is no, no foreseeable future. There is no human power to even invent a future. It feels like this story has come to its natural end. And this is echoed in other parts of the story too. Listen to this. One day, Terah took his son Abram and his daughter-in-law Sarai, and they moved away from Ur of the Chaldeans. He was headed for the land of Canaan, but they stopped at Haran and settled there. And Terah lived for 205 years and died while still in Haran. So Terah was headed for the land of Canaan. And if you know a little bit about the Old Testament, you'll know that Canaan is like a central land in the story of the Old Testament. But instead of getting to his destination, he stopped halfway there and just settled. He came to a stall. The storyteller here is setting us up. He is telling us that the story, as far as anyone could tell, had come to an end. There was no potential for future generations. There were no new journeys that were being taken. Everything was fixed. The story has reached its inevitable end and sputtered to a slow, sluggish stop. Anyone feeling the barrenness of human history this week? The lack of potential? Like we're back in the same old cycle, like we're in that car and we've come again to a slow, sputtering stop. Anyone feel like there's nowhere to go? Like the materials available to us just have no potential for anything new? Like we just keep hitting the dead end and so we might as well just all settle. Maybe for you it's the reality of COVID. It is for me. I'm tired of protocols coming and going. I'm tired of not agreeing with people that I love. And I don't feel like I can really hope that things will get better. I tried that in May and it didn't work out very well for me. But maybe you're also feeling this barrenness in other ways or in other places in your life. In your relationships with those closest to you, like a child, a spouse, a partner, a friend, or you're dealing with grief or sickness or loss. The good news of Abram's restart is that while it seems like there's nothing here to work with, there's nothing in this story with the potential for newness, it's actually these very conditions that make the story ripe for what's next. So a few years ago, I was driving from my acreage to my kid's school in Clavette to pick one of them up, and my tire popped. So I was on a grid road, I was all by myself. I was dressed up to go out for supper. I was not at all prepared for this reality, for having my car just putter to a stop at the edge of the road. So I remembered that my dad had taught me like 20 years before that how to change a spare tire, but I'd actually never done it. So I gave myself a pep talk. I got out of the SUV. I was getting all of the stuff out of the back of the car when this huge truck pulled up beside me, throwing gravel as it skid to a stop. And a couple of super shady looking characters jumped 
out of the truck and told me that they'd spotted me from the highway and they were there to help. Now, I wasn't sure that I wanted their help. They looked like just the kind of guys that your dad tells you not to accept help from. But I had no other option. I had a kid waiting for me. And they kind of were insistent, so I just stepped to the side. I swear they had that tire changed in 30 seconds. They hardly said two words for me. They jumped back in their truck, spun their wheels, and kicking gravel again, they were off. Now, had my car not come to a halt on the side of that road, there would have been no room in my story for those two characters that day. But my helplessness became the very condition that introduced these characters to my plotline. And it's the same in this story of Abram. The story has come to this sputtering stop on the side of the road, and we're left wondering, is it over? Or will someone or something new be introduced to keep the plot line going? Now, besides the fact that we have more than 15 pages in our Bible, uh, I gave you a clue last week as to who might that new character be. Do you guys remember the verse I told you that you should memorize and put on like a pair of glasses so that whenever you read a story for the next two and a half months, you know who the hero is? Do you remember? Anybody remember that verse? No? It's okay. Another chance. From Exodus 34, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So we finished chapter 11 of Genesis with the statement, Sarai was barren and she had no children. There's no more genealogy. There's no more kids. The story is over. Or is it? Listen to the first verses of chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, Leave your native country, your relatives and your father's family, and go to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous, and you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt, and all of the families on the earth will be blessed through you. The new character is God. It's God who brings newness to this story. God steps in like the hoodlums in the big truck throwing gravel and gets the stalled story back up and running. God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Now I want you to notice that there is nothing that Abram has done in his story to set him up for this new start. There's no indication in the text that he somehow earned this choosing. The only thing that seems to set him apart is his absolute need for a restart and the complete lack of potential in his circumstances for a restart. Thus, he becomes the perfect candidate to give God center stage as the hero, as the one who brings a new thing, as the one who keeps the story going. But while there's nothing that Abram does to deserve this new storyline, rather than other than just simply needing it, there is something that is required of him 
to receive the promise that God has given. He has to relinquish the old, settled storyline. He has to go. He has to leave the old behind. And that's exactly what Abram does. So Abram departed as the Lord had instructed. Abram was 75 years old when he left Haran, and he took his wife Sarai and headed it into the land of Canaan. And when they arrived in Canaan, Abram traveled through the land as far as Shechem, and there he set up camp beside the Oak of Moreh. At that time, the area was inhabited by Canaanites. And then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, I will give, you this, I will give this land to your descendants. So on the side of the road that day when my tire popped, I could have sent the sketchy dudes away, right? They came to offer their help, and I could have either taken it or not. But they, and they said what they were going to do, but if I hadn't taken their help, I wouldn't have known that they actually did what they said they were going to do. Instead, I probably would have come away from that interaction with a very different story. I probably would have said something like, Ah, uh, my tire popped on the side of the road one day, and I narrowly missed danger by refusing help from these sketchy dudes on the side of the road. Getting the help I needed required that I relinquish some control, some fear, some idea of what a safe person was. And Abram, too, has to relinquish. He has to leave his country, his relatives, his family, in order to experience God's promise. He has to relinquish the past in order to be a part of the new story. Henry Nguyen says this about prayer, but I think it is a beautiful statement about what we're uh, talking about today. Listen to this. At fir a first prayer is often a painful prayer because you discover that you don't want to let go. You hold fast to what is familiar even if you aren't proud of it. You find yourself saying, that's just how it is with me. I would like it to be different, but it can't be now. That's just the way it is, and this is the way I'll have to leave it. Once you talk like that, you've already given up believing that your life might be otherwise. You've already let the hope for a new life just float by. Since you wouldn't dare put a question mark after a bit of your own experience with all of its attachments, you have wrapped yourself up in the destiny of facts. You feel it's safer to cling to a sorry past than to trust in a new future. The good news is this. God does new things in situations where it feels like nothing new can come, where there is no future. These, in fact, are the best conditions for redemption because they set us up to receive grace, to receive help. We worship a God of new things, even in the middle of a global pandemic. But in order to be a part of, of whatever new thing God is up to, we have to open our hands. We have to relinquish things. We must move beyond old, settled, fixed locations. So what do you need to relinquish? What old storylines, stories of barrenness and hopelessness do you need to let go of? What opinions or postures or attitudes keep, you, uh, keep your fists tightly closed? 
What plans or expectations prevent you from staying open to the new thing that God might be offering? As a church community, what is it that we need to relinquish? What old storylines do we need to let go of? Maybe stories from our past, but also maybe beliefs and postures that keep us from holding a posture of openness to the world. How are we, like Abram, being called not just to settle in the land of our predecessors, but to go forth into a new place and to embrace whatever land God is calling us to? The promise that God offers is full of hope, but it is also demanding. It requires something of us. It requires that we let go, that we open ourselves up, that we make ourselves vulnerable, that we refuse to sit on the sidelines and critique the play from the stands. Now, I don't know what new thing God is up to in the middle of this pandemic. I don't know what our church will look like in a month or a year or 10 years. And I don't know what new thing God is going to bring in your experiences of barrenness or where you feel God asking you to open your clenched fist. But I do believe the storyline. God creates. We mess it up or it gets messed up on us. And God redeems. God steps in and invites Abram into this new direction, and he does this through a promise. But it's a promise. It's not the thing itself. God promises Abram that God will make Abram a great nation, that God will bless him and make him famous. But it's in the future, and there's actually no evidence in the present to indicate that that promise is even possible. First off, Abram, God tells Abram that he will make him a nation. And as we know, Sarai is barren, and she's old. There are no babies, and there is no evidence that there ever will be a baby. God promises that God will give Abram land, but Abram is a nomad. He has no land. And when he does arrive in the land God promises him, it's already occupied. It's already inhabited. So not only is there no evidence that God's promises are actually going to happen, there is evidence to the contrary that they could even happen. And yet, Abram starts to build his life around these promises, around a future of which he has no assurance. Abram sets out on his journey with only two things, the promise of a new future and the faith to believe it. Centuries later, Paul, reflecting on this story, wrote these words. We call Abraham father not because he got God's attention by living like a saint, but because God made something out of Abraham when he was a nobody. Isn't that what we've always read in scripture? God saying to Abraham, I set you up as the father of many peoples. Abraham was first named father and then became a father because he dared to trust God to do what only God could do. Raise the dead to life with a word. Make something out of nothing. When everything was hopeless, Abraham believed anyway, deciding to live not on the basis of what he saw he couldn't do, 
but on what God said he would do. Abraham didn't focus on his own impotence and say, it's hopeless. This hundred-year-old body could never father a child. Nor did he survey Sarah's decades of infertility and give up. He didn't tiptoe around God's promise, asking cautiously skeptical questions. He plunged into the promise and came up strong, ready for God, sure that God would make good on what he had said. And that's why it is said, Abraham was declared fit before God by trusting God to set him right. But it's not just Abraham. It's also us. The same thing gets said about us when we embrace and believe the one who brought Jesus to life when the conditions were equally hopeless. Abraham was first named a father, and then he became a father because he believed the promise that he would become a father. He lived on the basis of what God could do instead of what he, Abraham, could not do. And in the process of believing that by faith, he became what he was not and had no hope to be. And Paul says the same goes for us in our situations, situations that are equally hopeless. Faith in God's promise to redeem and renew all things reorients the direction of our lives. Faith in the God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love redirects our energies so that we experience the fulfillment of the promise while we wait. Orienting ourselves to the promises of God means that we are drawn into them. They are not just things that happen to us. Promises shape us. They mold us. They make us into new people. So let's think about the trajectory of Scripture. God creates, humanity messes it up, and God redeems it anyway. God recreates, God restores, God renews, God starts over. In the end, all of it, every little piece of creation, every human being will be restored and made new. This is God's project in the world. This is God's promise. Now, if I believe that, how will it change my posture in my closest relationships? How does that change the way that I value my dad, who has dementia? How does it change the way I relate to my children who are going out into the world and making their own decisions in life? How will it change the way that I relate to my community, to my church, to my city, to my neighbor? How does that change how I hold hope in the middle of COVID? How will it help me live in community with people I agree with and with people I don't? And so you see, immediately, you are drawn in. The promise is an invitation to participate, to become what it is that we hope for, transformed, whole, loving, redeemed. So, if life feels barren, if it feels stalled, if it feels hopeless, if it feels like everything is over, if it feels like the story has ended, remember, endings are the best place for a restart. 
orient your life to God's promise that redemption is a sure thing, no matter the situation, because the God who called a nomadic, childless nobody to become the famous father of a nation is still the hero, and he is still renewing and redeeming stalled storylines. Thank you.